Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Burns. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, my friend? I am really excited because we have an icon and a legend of the toy industry here with us today. The guy who... The guy who taught me this business and whose feet I sat at as I learned how what toys was all about, Barry Schwartz of SchwartzPR.com. He and I go back, we were just estimating about 42 years when he was wow. doing PR for CBS Toys and I was a lowly copywriter and then I moved into... Uh, into public relations. So we've got a lot of stories. Barry, welcome and thanks for being with us. Thank you, Chris, and hello, Richard. Okay, so uh, let me see. Actually, I got into toys quite by accident. Like most of us. Yeah, pretty much so. Uh, I started out in the PR a zillion years ago, and I was working essentially in financial management of all things. And one of my clients was a, a company in the uh, commercial finance and factoring business. I don't know how much you guys know about factoring. Uh, it factoring used to be a big a, deal. Yeah, it was a form of uh, money, money lending that, that really had a bad uh, reputation, uh, not well-deserved. Uh, uh, too many people considered it like one step removed from borrowing from the mafia, whatever, but uh, it was actually uh, in quite common use by the toy industry because factoring was uh, based on uh, helping manufacturers who had seasonal products to sell. So in doing my work, I came across a company that they were factoring called Gabriel Industries. And I thought to myself, gee, that sounds interesting. Yeah, factoring toys, of course, that's a good idea. And then, uh, to my surprise, the, the head of Dahmer called me one day and he said, I've been talking to these folks at Gabriel and they think they have some products that they would like to publicize. They don't know how. So would you like to meet them? And I said, <laughs> sure. So I went and, and I met a guy who I adored and it, it became a great friendship and, and a client, Jerry Fryer. Right. And Jerry Fryer, uh, and his partner, uh, Mort Levy, uh, they had this unique ability to be able to buy companies that were on the way down, but thought they had name value. And included in that group was the Erector Set and the AC Gilbert line of science toys. And so they turned that over to me. And I, who had never done toy PR, said, why not? <laughs> and, and and soon we were starting to get press for the erector set and gilbert toys and so forth and so on not that long ago they had the uh, toy industry hall of fame inductees right and then i realized that i have represented three of them uh, jerry fryer is one jim becker is uh, two and jim pressman is uh, three the the most recent inductee I've always been a game addict. I, I love that stuff. When I saw Othello, I just fell in love with it. And I said, hey, maybe we can do something with that too. And so little by little, I mean, you know, the media was different in those days as, you know, Chris and I were you know, talking about that. You know, you, <laughs> uh, for the most part, uh, more than today, frankly, uh, you know, the media was more accessible. 
social media was a completely unknown thing. So you wanted to meet editors, you would go out and knock on doors or, wow, pick up the telephone and there was somebody on the other end. Take them out and, to drink. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and then you tell your story. And, and, you know, if they liked your story, then they, then they would listen. And then, you know, <laughs> you would tuck a sample under your arm and go talk to them or have lunch. Wow, lunch. What a thing. Barry, what, what years are we talking about? Uh, we're, we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s. And could you describe the toy industry at that time? But today, as you well know, we're dominated as an industry by a few very large companies. But yeah. at that time, it was, it was a more even playing field. It was a, a lot of comparatively little guys all trying to make a difference. Uh, it was very product oriented. And also, I think in the manufacturer's favor, there was more of a spread of retailers out there. There wasn't a Toys R Us at that time. There certainly wasn't an Amazon or a Walmart or anybody like that that they were selling against. So you were selling to, wow, what an idea. Toy stores, right. real toy stores. Uh, FAO Schwartz, you know, was a, was a player in the toy field, but lots and lots of smaller to medium-sized toy stores. And then also uh, department stores. Every department store had, you know, of any consequence, had a toy department. Weren't distributors important at that time? Yes, they were. They were. Because, you know, in, in, in so many cases, the, you know, the toy manufacturers didn't have the means to get their stuff out there. They needed stuff out there to represent. They needed sales forces. They needed sales reps. They needed distribution channels. Many of them were flying by the seat of their pants for nine months out of the year. And Barry, where were the toys made? in the 60s many of them in the united states some in germany a lot of the the, the better wooden type toys etc china who thought about china really and so it started to catch on slowly i want to go back even before gabriel and before that i i want to go back to the very beginning of your career because like many of us you began as a performer in vaudeville damn right <laughs> tell us a little bit about that my dad, uh, before he met my mom, was a vaudevillian. Uh, he, he was a song and dance man. Jack Schwartz, uh, a.k.a. <laughs> a, a.k.a. Teddy Wilson, the shimmy lizard, okay? Ah! Wow, wow. <laughs> I never heard of shimmy lizard. Yeah, and so my, my, my dad uh, was really on, on, on the vaudeville circuit as a song and dance man. He got into the Army uh, just before... World War One entered. He was drafted as a as an eighteen year old because he had was in show business already. He he was instead of doing any kind of military training, uh, he immediately joined a show written by Irving Berlin called Yip Yip Yap Hank. I know that show. <laughs> yeah, it was it was named after Camp Yap Hank out on Long Island. My dad was in that show, became friendly with uh, Berlin. My dad was a private. Berlin was a sergeant. Uh, they did the show for about a week or two uh, in Long Island. And then the military decided, hey, this could be great morale booster. 
uh, for uh, our war effort. And so they brought the show to Broadway. So my father spent his military career on Broadway. <laughs> when he got out of the army, met my mom. In those days, show business meant uh, touring year sure. round. And he didn't want to you know, live out of a trunk for a year. So he decided to use his smarts as a performer and go into sales. And he built a very successful career in uh, automotive sales. And uh, that was it. But since he was always singing and dancing around the house, and my mother came from a, a very musical family as well, there was always music there. So it was just natural for me to say, hey, daddy, I want to try that too. <laughs> and so by the time I was six years old, I was dancing in Broadway reviews. <laughs> And uh, then uh, teamed up with another guy when we were uh, just started high school. And uh, we were part of a kid group in the USO. We were all <laughs> young teenagers. We were doing shows within a 50 mile radius, maybe 75 mile radius of New York City. We had a band, there was a ventriloquist in the group. <laughs> My buddy and I did song and dance and comedy stuff. And uh, that attracted the attention of an agent. And so by the time I was 15, uh, I had graduated to the Borscht Belt. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. And uh, actually uh, continued doing that all the way through, through college. And uh, in my show business uh, career, I worked with, uh, you name it, I mean, worked with Buddy Hackett, with Red Buttons, uh, with Eddie Fisher, Myron Cohn, Rosemary Clooney. I mean, so many stars along the way. But also, like my dad decided, I really didn't want show business as a career. I loved it while I was doing it. But then went into PR, which frankly, Chris, and I think you'll agree, is kind of a form of show business. It, it absolutely is a form of show business. And then I'm, now I'm gonna jump you ahead because you have worked on so many iconic brands during your career. You also are the guy who brought Lego to the United States in 1960. Yep. How did that come about? Well, that was also kind of by accident because uh, our client at the time was Samsonite Luggage. And the president of Samsonite was on a trip to Europe scouting out sites for a plant. And while he was in Belgium, he saw some kids uh, playing with Lego. And he said, wow. That's molded plastic. We can do that. In those days, Samsonite luggage was primarily molded plastic, all of it made in America at the time. And uh, without any prior announcement, uh, flew up to Billund, Denmark, and, and showed up at Lego headquarters and said, hey, uh, if you want to have your stuff made in the United States and save on shipping and all of that, we can do that for you. Wow. And out of that, came a long-term licensing agreement between Samsonite and Lego. Okay, so about a month later, I get a call from the head of Samsonite Luggage and say, hey, Barry, I've seen you've, you've been doing some stuff in the toy industry anyway. Have you heard about this thing called Lego? I said, no, tell me about it. Huh? As they say, uh, the rest is history. And we had a lot of fun at, at CBS Toys. Uh, one of the things that... that you did was you introduced Hello Kitty to, to the United States. 
For better or worse, you introduced Hello Kitty. <laughs> you know, Hello Kitty was especially fun because, you know, here was this uh, great product, a huge hit in Japan. We, uh, as an agency, already had a great success with the uh, introducing the Othello game from uh, Japan. With Hello Kitty, we said, okay, she's great, but she can't talk. <laughs> Hello Kitty doesn't have a mouth. Right. So, but how can we convey how sweet and kind she is? And so, uh, again, in those days, you know, you pick up the phone and you try something. So we managed to make a connection with UNICEF and uh, talk to the PR people who were handling UNICEF for the United Nations. And we said, uh, have you heard of Hello Kitty? And they said, yeah, she's, you know, very big in Japan. Well, she's coming to America. Uh, how about Hello Kitty as a spokesperson for UNICEF? And <laughs> to, our, to our, again, surprise and delight, they said, sure, why not? So we had Hello Kitty booked for all kinds of appearances. The greatest fun was the huge head. <laughs> of the Kitty. costumed character had a huge head. <laughs> and of course, no costume character is allowed to be shown without the head, especially. And I remember one time we had a rush from uh, one media meeting to another, and we were running late. And we left the toy building and had to get to a television studio or something. And uh, there was Hello Kitty in costume. I couldn't get Hello Kitty into the taxi because the head was too big. So <laughs> we had to go into a corner, get her, her it was a, a small person, <laughs> really, get get her down to the tracksuit that she was wearing and put her in a cab to go uh, to the studio. And I ran something like 10 or 12 blocks to the TV studio carrying the Hello Kitty head. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary. Barry, you've spoken of three phenomenal toys that you were involved with. Lego from Denmark, and then two Japanese products, Othello and Hello Kitty. Mm -hmm. When you step back and you look at these products, is there anything you see that makes these products great products? Is there anything we can learn? Yes. When I saw Lego for the first time, I said to myself, this is probably the greatest toy ever made. Because as the saying goes, I don't even know if they use that slogan anymore, it was uh, build anything the mind imagines. And when you think about it, you know, you put four bricks together and a kid makes a dog uh, and takes it apart and puts six bricks together and makes a house. And it, to some degree, and I understand why Lego, you know, had to continue to build and build upon itself, but I think to some degree, the, the, the premise of Lego has changed in that I see Lego now and brilliant as they are and as creative as they are, I see them more as model building kits than creativity. In those days, you know, you built anything. And as a matter of fact, when we were promoting Lego in the early days, uh, as I said, you know, earlier, it was a largely department store business. Uh, we, we were the first to put in the play tables at, uh, came up with that idea to put in play tables at department stores. 
so you know the kids uh, could play. And where did that idea come from? Now I'm really dating myself. The New York World's Fair, <laughs> because there was there was a Danish pavilion at the New York World's Fair, which had a wonderful restaurant, and so that uh, mom and dad could enjoy lunch or dinner or whatever at the restaurant in the back of the uh, of the uh, restaurant area and back of the pavilion. They had a Lego play area. Wow! With uh, young Danish women supervising the kids at play, and the kids then again were allowed to build things. So we started promoting Lego building contests, and that's how it happened. Also, being uh, the first, we had a Lego train uh, brought in from uh, Tivoli right. Gardens in in uh, Copenhagen. Uh, to be in the Macy's parade uh, in 67 or 68, something like that. And we were delighted with that because Macy's agreed to have it done up until that time. Building the floats was a profit center for Macy's. Right. The consul general of Denmark talked to SAS and had the Lego train flown in from Copenhagen for the Macy's parade. And so, you know, there we were on national television. So, you know, it's that kind of thing, always thinking out of the box, really. And, and you have thought out of the box. One of the things that we did, introducing a game called Murder to Go, we, uh, ah. <laughs> right? After CBS Toys had acquired Ideos, we spray-painted body outlines all around the toy district, which, of course, was you completely illegal to do. And and then the night before Toy Fair, we went around with a stencil that said "Ideal" with the Ideal Showroom. We were out at insane times of the of the day doing all of this stuff. We never got in trouble, but we were always more forgiveness than permission kind of guys. <laughs> I remember that night full well because uh, we were afraid the cops were going going to arrest us. You know, saying, "What are you going to do about that?" So yeah, I mean, the point is, you know, you always try to think of something. Uh, I think my second favorite story about uh, that uh, Murder to Go game was when we arranged to have the game played on a New York to Bermuda cruise on the Queen Elizabeth. Right. And we hired a group of actors and they were going to do the thing. And we had notified the media and they were going to come down there. And, you know, again, where else can we get ink for whatever we're doing? After CBS, after CBS uh, was dissolved in 1985, you went on and you worked with Pressman for a while, did a lot of amazing things with Pressman during their heyday, who wants to be a millionaire, but you also worked with Vanna White. <laughs> yes, for, Vanna for, White. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a great lady. We had an event at uh, Macy's, as a matter of fact. And then we, uh, we all went out to a disco and uh, my God, uh, I was her arm candy. I'll never forget that. Okay. <laughs> She was wonderful. So was uh, Robin Leach, wonderful, on, on the Millionaire game. But I think my favorite game with uh, Pressman was uh, Gooey Louie. Love, Love that. that. <laughs> Love that one. But I have to tell you a story about another game. You know, talk about PR inventiveness, the Othello game. So Othello had uh, grown to the point where we were having uh, international uh, tournaments. And so uh, the first one was in Tokyo, where, my God, an American came in second. Uh, even better, the American was a woman. So that was big news in Japan. 
And then the uh, tournament was in New York, was in London and so forth. And when the tournament was scheduled for Rome, news junkie that I am, I remembered that uh, in reading about John Paul II, the, the, the Pope from Poland, I remembered once reading that he was a, a, a chess player. And we also knew from our Othello experience that a lot of chess grandmasters also loved the Othello game. So we got in touch with the uh, Italian Othello Federation, asked them if they had any Vatican contacts. And they did. <laughs> they did. And we said, well, could we arrange to have then uh, an Othello set given to the Pope at the Vatican? Waited nervously for about a week and they came back to us and they said, sure. And we had an audience here, this Jewish kid from Brooklyn had an audience, a group of about 20 of us from the Othello group and, and gave an Othello set to the Pope. And that, that particular picture ended up in Time magazine. So it's stuff like that. It's stuff like that. Barry, it seems like a large number of your stories involve you bumping up against entertainers. Do you think that affinity came from your background in vaudeville or is that the way pr worked in those days uh the, the uh, answer to that is both <laughs> really Be because uh i i think uh, a lot of the best pr people that i've worked with over the years uh sometimes uh, colleagues sometimes competitors etc have always been idea people have always been people, persons who just like to engage with others. I mean, you know, a, a product is a product. And, and, you know, and frankly, if the product is a clunker, you're not going to be able to sell it anyway. Right. But if the product has any redeeming value, then there has to be an idea or two or three or four that se helps separate it from the pack. And that's, you know, that's what you do. I'll give you another case in point, the game uh, that, Perhaps you've forgotten about, I don't know, but Chris, remember the game uh, Question of Scruples? Oh, absolutely. It was huge. Okay. So uh, here was a very small manufacturer, Maruka Industries, Carl Eisenberg. And Carl called me up one day and uh, because he knew about, you know, my history with uh, helping board games happen. And he said, I've got this game in, invented by some Canadian professor and it's doing pretty well up in Canada and I want to introduce it here in, in the States. When he showed me the game, I was just blown away because as a game, it had hardly any play value as a game. <laughs> but the premise of the game to question, you know, how would you answer difficult questions, okay? Uh, I thought that was fascinating. So what did we do? We started to send cards around from the game to media all over the place. That was easy to send cards. One day, I get a call from a producer at uh, the Johnny Carson show. And he said, Carson likes this. Send over a game. Wow. About three weeks later, and I don't think anyone else can make that claim. We had over 12 minutes on Johnny Carson's show. Good heavens. He played the game with his audience. Wow. Sales went through the roof. 
to the point where Maruka could really no longer keep up with demand. And so they eventually uh, sold the game to uh, Milton Bradley for a multi, multi-million dollar deal. And, you know, there it was. There were scruples. It's ideas. Ideas that are sparked by products that they and themselves spark the ideas. So it's all, all of one piece, really. So Barry, you're still doing this, and yes, you're you're still doing this, and and you were you were the guiding force behind a, a toy, create a castle, which won a toy of the year award two years ago. That's right. Um, yeah. And how would you say that the PR landscape has changed? Because I'm I'm inundated on a daily basis with stuff, and I don't see these ideas. I mentioned to you as we were starting to to record that I saw a truck with a, with a new board game or a new adult game right. on the street this weekend. And I thought, oh, it's old school. That's so cool. Great. How has PR changed today from, from when you were uh, talking to the Pope? The, uh, the quote-unquote traditional media has uh, largely disappeared. I mean, yeah, you know, it used to be that you had to get into certain magazines to help make things happen. You had to get into certain newspapers to help things happen. Uh, if you were lucky, then you would get on some TV shows for this or that to make things happen. A lot of it today is social media driven. A lot of the media is now media online, not only magazines, bloggers have become very important and overused word, but the influencers. Okay. Right. How do you influence the, in I'm talking to you. You're an influencer, Chris. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, how, how do you influence the influencers? How do you attract the, their attention. I think it's a much more difficult world for PR these days uh, because the quote unquote traditional tools have largely disappeared, vying for attention. I hate the term fake news, but there is a lot of fake news out there. For a manufacturer to be able to measure uh, uh, ROI, their return on investment, you know, how do you really do it? That's a tough one. At the same time, if something original comes along, then there are ways to promote that. So you were talking about Create a Castle. Kevin Lane, who you know, Chris, yep. came up with this. And Kevin uh, comes out of a social media world in that you know he designs websites and creates websites. So he knew how to use that. But at the same time, in talking to Kevin on you know how to promote this, and said, Kevin, best way to do this, you know, Get your butt out on the road, wherever there's sand, do things. <laughs> really. And that will attract attention. And sure enough, he did. I mean, uh, he and his wife, Lori, uh, they're hardworking and it's, and it's paid off. Because the more you show a product like that, the more attention it attracts. You start to build uh, up word of mouth, and word of mouth turns into sales. And now, I mean, Create a Castle is a huge hit. And, of course, he's come up with a new wrinkle now because you can, you know, build uh, with snow or artificial snow. So instead of a summer toy, he's now a year-round toy. Barry, sometimes we have what I call active God moments where toys just take off. And yeah. It's irrational. And... I understand you were involved with one called Billy Bass. So what's it like doing PR where you're trying to control a rocket? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
for a PR man, it's a dream because it's incoming instead of outgoing. Okay. Right. You know, uh, you say, hey, you know, this one wants this, this one wants that. You just do the best you can. You just do the best you can. That's all. My feeling about it is always be nice, always be attentive, always think of what the media needs and how can you best help them, whomever, whatever, wherever those media might be, because you never know. And uh, that's been my philosophy ever since going into PR now uh, over 50 years, you know, doing this kind of thing, doing it. I've always thought of media. I respect them. I call myself a news junkie. Being aware of something, quite often I'll, I'll call a friend in the media and say, hey, you ought to know about this, even if it has absolutely nothing to do with any of my clients. And so you build up an element of trust doing that. If you do that for a lifetime career, then it builds up that kind of trust. So then they know that when I call them with something that I'm trying to sell, they know I'm not wasting their time and they'll give me a fair hearing. That's all I can ask for, really. And then sometimes also, sometimes you have to be surreptitious. This is one of my favorite stories. A client of mine at the time, Galoob, remember them? Oh gosh, yeah. yes. And so uh, Galoob had come up with this uh, product called Game Genie, wh which was a code developed by a couple of guys out of uh, London, I believe, that enabled you to change the way some Nintendo games were played. And you could make them easier to play, but you could also make them harder to play. And when Nintendo saw that happening, they came after Galoob in a very big way and sued them and had a temporary injunction issued in the United States. It wasn't enforceable in Canada because they claimed that it reduced uh, the appeal of Nintendo games if it made them too easy. And Galoob contended in court, uh, yeah, it made them too easy, but it also made them harder. So what's the problem? So we had to deal with that in two ways. Number one, because the game was still available in Canada, our media outreach then went to, in those days, newspapers, radio stations, <laughs> TV stations, all on the north border of the United States, in Buffalo, in Detroit, in Seattle, and places like that, and saying, hey, folks, uh, if you're a game player, you need a game genie, uh, and uh, <laughs> just go over the bridge, and you can get it there, and there, and there, and that worked. Okay, that was temporary. But then uh, along came uh, a major uh, game show in Las Vegas. And I went out to Las Vegas and there was the Gloob booth and they weren't allowed to show uh, Game Genie out in the open. You can only see it behind the curtain, okay, <laughs> by law, because they were under a temporary injunction. But I went over to the Nintendo booth because they had run a contest for the best Nintendo game player in the United States. And they had this teenage guy there uh, who had won. And I engaged him in conversation with my tape player on. And I said, hey, have you ever heard about this thing called Game Genie? And he said, I love it. And I said, really, why? 
He said, well, I forget whatever Nintendo game. He said, I put in the code to make it harder. And boy, it makes it even tougher to break. I love this. Turned that over to Galoob's lawyers and we won the case. Wow. So Barry, we could talk with you all day. And as I've, I've talked with you most of my life now. And, but I know, I know you want to leave us with one quick story about Lego. Go ahead. Okay. So when we first saw Lego, I knew that it had been very popular in Scandinavian countries that prominent architects like Eero Saarinen had actually used uh, Lego to build their early models. It was simple. You put up a building, you take it apart and you try all over again. Okay. So when we first saw Lego, I said, gee, how can we attract attention? Frankly, media interest in the beginning was lukewarm. They didn't quite get it. We had to come up with something dramatic. So again, being fearless, I got in touch with the head of the architectural design department at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn and told him about Lego. And he'd heard of it because of, of uh, the Saarinen connection. And I said, if we deliver a ton of Lego bricks to you, can you have your students build something? And he said, sure. So we sent him the catalog and he came back with this huge laundry list of bricks that he wanted. There were no motors in those days, just pulleys. And turned it over to him. Five weeks later, I get a telephone call. He said, you want to come down and see what we've done? Go to this place and his uh, class, there were about 20 students in the class, built a Lego city that was about 20 feet long on a large table. It just blew my mind. Uh, took pictures, showed them to the producers at the Today Show, and three weeks later, that was uh, created and shipped and rebuilt in the Today Studios, and we had eight minutes on the Today Show, and that's what initially put Lego on the map. Two weeks after that, I get a telephone call in my office and a very gruff voice on the other end of the phone says, hey, Schwartz. Says, yeah. I said, I said, who is this? He said, Norman. I said, who? Norman. I said, Norman who? Norman Mailer. <laughs> he said, I saw that thing on the Today Show and I called him up and I wanted to know how, how they got that. He said, you want to send me some stuff? I want to build some Lego in my basement. <laughs> and Norman Mailer built his own version of Lego City in the basement of his brownstone in Brooklyn. And that also showed up on the Today Show. <laughs> that, that is amazing. And you have had an amazing career. I, I feel so privileged to have been, been part of it. And I'm so excited to be able to share a lot of this with our listeners today. This is, this is toy history and, and really a great lesson about innovation and digging into the ideas. So Barry Schwartz, thank you so much. I hope you're working for a lot more years. Toy companies need you. <laughs> thank you. And uh, I love to have discovered you, kid Chris. <laughs> Thanks. Barry, it was a pleasure having you. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about things that are having an impact on the toy industry. And in this time of change, there are a few things that we can always count on. One of them, however, was the Star Ferry in Hong Kong. In the 25 plus years that I was going to Hong Kong, it was the way I went from Hong Kong Island to Kowloon. Richard... You just wrote about this. What's going on? Well, the, the reports coming out of Hong Kong are that 
the Hong Kong ferry is in pretty deep financial trouble and it may cease to exist. Now, as I'm sure you can attest, I think it's one of the most unique experiences in the world. Absolutely. For those who haven't been, it is a ferry boat that looks like it came out of the early part of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, it has a chugging sound. It holds probably maybe 100, 120 people. It's funky, but not in a cool way. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you wait and you board as a large group. And the, and the trip is maybe 12 or 15 minutes across. And as you cross the harbor, you are surrounded by skyscrapers. On the water are um, cruise ships and junks that are beautiful. And so it is an experience that really takes you away from the everyday. And so when you're in Hong Kong and you're jet lagged and your mind is on negotiation, and here you are, and you have this moment of peaceful reverie as you cross that harbor. I, I really hope that it doesn't go away. I do, too. And, and I can't think of a better vantage point over the past quarter century to see the changes in the Hong Kong skyline. There are so many changes that have happened, certainly since before the, the handover and after, but the large neon signs that used to hang out over the Nathan Road are gone. Uh, you could sit on the ferry and see the new buildings that went up and watch the, the change in the skyline. And, and even watching the new convention center being built because it wasn't even there the first times we were there. It really is something to look forward to. And yes, it's a, it's a relic from the past, but right now... It costs under 50 cents to ride it. Maybe they can increase that because it is such an effective way to, to get from, from the island across, across the harbor. Well, you can take the subway, and it is a wonderful subway. Right. It's clean, it's modern, but it's, it's underground. I mean, it's not that it's functional. Something about this which was very unique to Hong Kong and I think it's emblematic of a lot of changes taking place in Hong Kong as China and Hong Kong appear to be changing in terms of their relationship to the business world. I'm very hopeful to get back there. And, and I'm hopeful that on this one issue, <laughs> they'll work it out. <laughs> Just this is all we're asking save for right now. Save, save the ferry because Hong Kong is the only place I go when I come back to New York. I say, wow, things are so slow here. <laughs> right? <laughs> so that race right. to the ferry and then you sit down for 12 minutes across the harbor. And I, I will post some pictures in Instagram over the years about the, the ferry because there are so many I, I've taken the same picture every year for 25 years or more <laughs> well you know you it's funny you say that about Hong Kong because the New York minute and the Hong Kong minute is certainly just as fast if not faster 
Well, Chris Brown, let's hope they save the fairy. Save the fairy. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Beacon Media Group. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.